and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. My name's Tom Rivet Karnak. And my name is Christiana Figueres. And my name is Paul Dickinson. And you are recording, aren't you, Christiana? With your headphones. <laughs> yes, I am, Paul. It's just a seamless beginning. This week. It's just because we called for we had this trouble. Sorry, Tom, go ahead. This week, we talk about faith investors, climate, and religion. We speak to Professor Catherine Hayhoe, and we have music from Too Many Teas. Thanks for being here. Dickinson, you can't ruin my intro like that. It's next to me almost my slide. It was not ruining the intro. It was just, we, we go to this thing where Clay checks if everyone was recording. And then when he asked Christiana if she was recording, then she he, he, she couldn't, we couldn't hear Christiana talk. And now it's fixed and we don't know why. Wow. But you, I thought I would check if, you know. Christiana's giving you that slightly quizzical, I wonder what on earth he's doing look. I'm wondering when Paul Dickinson is going to stop cascading. <laughs> it, it is a maleficent. You know, some people have like the sound of a waterfall in the corner of their room. One of those machines that goes blah, 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 blah. It's a little bit like that. It's, 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 it's kind. You know, it's gentle. It's, it's when, when we first decided to do this podcast with you, Paul, I assumed it was inevitability that eventually you'd get a better offer and you'd, you'd leave us in the ditch and you'd be off. I'm how, waiting. How, how far, far away do you think zero, we are? Seven for the UK. <laughs> plus four, four, seven, nine, five, eight. I am open. I don't have an agent. You just contact me directly. Uh, weddings, mitzvahs. Tom, how are you? Right. I'm doing very well, but aside from your somewhat um, interesting perspectives on where we are and your obvious, you know, megalomania and desire for power, um, I'm curious to know how you are and how Christiana's doing. You know, I'm pretty good. I'm uh, fascinated by the um, current state of the world. Uh, We are teetering on a knife edge of infinite import. Uh, The US election is going to go the way it goes and... You know, we, we actually have a, a distinguished um, religious figure uh, who we're going to speak to shortly, Catherine Hayhoe, which I'm very much looking forward to. I've just spent three days uh, with a intentional community in the north of Scotland called the Finthorn Foundation, where they believe in inner listening, uh, co-creation with nature, and work as love in action. They are having difficulties because they run residential courses and uh, they haven't got a lot of income at the moment. But um, I have found myself asking myself as someone who's brought up as an atheist um but then changed to be an ambassador between the worlds what do i think about god and i've come up with an atheist proof of god i may have told you before god is where i come from i come from the earth the earth is my god that's irrefutable but one thing i'm having real problem with and that is why do we presume god is male and isn't the presumption of the male identity of god the root of all sexism that's where I am, Tom, uh, Christiana. I, I, uh, I love it. And I also really love that you just described yourself as an ambassador between the worlds. That's quite lovely. That you, Is that how you think of yourself? It's a big yeah. job. It's right. a big it's job. Right. I'll be honest with you. And uh, the expenses are rubbish. You know what I mean? I have to pay my own train ticket. I really hope that's on your business card. Well, in a somewhat more mundane way, um, something very, very significant happened to me today. My son went back to school after... Seven months of being. You must home. have been heartbroken. Were you like at the gate with tears running he, down your? He skipped off without even looking back. I was ready for the tearful goodbye. He's seven years old, and he just skipped off, delighted to see the back of me. Is how it appeared. But I'm going to choose to believe that he was excited about going to school. That's Arthur. And what about Zoe? When did she go back to school? Uh, well, Zoe is, uh, as you know, quite a character and a wonderful one too. And she's decided that she really loves homeschooling. And she made a very compelling case to us that she wants to be able to direct her own learning. So she, at the age of nine, is taking control of her own curriculum, watching TED Talks, choosing things she's interested in, writing books. 
Um, <laughs> she wrote a play the other day on my, on Natasha's typewriter that she had us all play out. So it's great. So she she's around and and great fun it is too. So are you attending Zoe's school? Yeah, yeah exactly. That's much more what's happening. <laughs> How are you, Christiana? How's paradise? Well, you know, honestly, compared to the two of you, I I, I don't think I have much color to offer today because you all have totally monopolized on the on the fun and color. What color are the parrots? Rainbow. Yeah, they look that nice. Sounds like a lot of color to me. You, you'll have a lot of trouble getting away from a gray pigeon and a white seagull in my country. Right. So today we are going to be having an, a conversation about one of the most powerful dynamics that has the potential to change the world. And that's the relationship between religion or spirituality and faith and climate change. And we can't begin this story without talking about a woman who is a very dear friend of ours and has sadly passed away. And I knew her less well than either of you, but she made an enormous impact on the road to Paris, as well as many other things she did with her life. So which of you would like to tell the story of Tessa Tennant? Well, (laughs) I wasn't expecting that. It's hard to describe the infinite, but... uh... Uh, I first encountered Tessa Tennant at the, uh, in 1986 when she was ha- having a ball, the green ball, which was a wonderful occasion. And uh, I didn't meet Tessa then, but I heard of her. And two years later, I read her in the newspaper saying, uh, if you're an investor and there's pollution in the river, you can go along as a shareholder and you can say, I own your company and why are you putting junk in the river? And I thought, that's so cool. So I phoned her up in 1988 thinking I would get an interview and a job. And I was wrong. All I got was a a short conversation and nothing followed from that. Um, But I did have the privilege uh, 11 years later to uh, meet her and we got talking and we set up the organization CDP or Carbon Disclosure Project as it was, where I still work now 20 years later. And I can absolutely promise you that the reason why we were formed and successful uh, was because of her phenomenal global reputation. Uh, she was such a pioneer. Um, I, you know, we, we launched at Downing Street when she was giving a speech to the Prime Minister. She won numerous awards. And essentially, she was the sort of mother of responsible investment in the European continent, which is and, and, quite a prize. So, and, and that's, I mean, amazing. What an amazing story. And the, but the amazing thing, well, one of the amazing things is that was just one chapter of her, right? Because oh, yeah. the reason we're bringing her story up now is the relationship with Faith. And she played a pivotal role in that. Christiana, do you want to pick the story up there? So I'm, I'm at Tessa um, much at later. At Glen House. So no, at 2012 it would have been. At, thank you. 2012. Um, because we were having a retreat of uh, a group of women called the Lionesses who were all in mutual support of each other in the main different roles that we were playing for the Paris Agreement. And she offered to host us all. And one of the um, conclusions that came out of that retreat was the need to bring the different spiritual and faith communities in much closer into the negotiations for two reasons. A, because we needed support and enlightenment from above. Um, (laughs) And secondly, because it is such an influential group of people. It is such a massive population around the world. In fact, 85% of the people in the world have some kind of religious affiliation. And I had several chats with Tessa during that time saying, Tessa, what what do you think we could do now? Tessa was into responsible investing. She was not into mobilizing the faith communities. 
Um, but she came to the conclusion that this was a good thing to do and then volunteered to spearhead this effort to reach out to the leaders and the participants in so many different faith communities, spiritual communities, and organize them to be so much more active in the Paris Agreement, for which yeah. I shall be forever grateful to Tessa. And she wasn't particularly religious herself, right? At all. No, she was, you know, as atheist as Paul Dickinson. <laughs> well, it's a high bar, but yeah. Um, and I mean, we should complete the story by saying, sadly, we lost Tessa a few years ago after a battle with illness. But this legacy that she created, well, all these legacies on, on responsible investing, but also on the faith community, um, really live on. And it really has the profound power to make a transformative difference. As you said, Christiana, 85% of people had some kind of religious affiliation. And again, going back to 2015, one of the real turning points was when Pope Francis issued Laudato Si, um, of course, the encyclical about um, ecological responsibility. So Paul's waving his finger. Um, just because I, I wanted to um, kind of just highlight a, a couple of things from my 20 years working with institutional investors on climate change. Yeah. I suppose long story short, what I think is absolutely fascinating is institutional investors represent this extraordinary um, aggregation of economic influence and power. But when combined with faith communities, that becomes activated and it's incredibly exciting. And, and I, I think we really shouldn't underestimate the influence of faith investors in helping to move uh, enormous things, uh, shareholder resolutions, the CA100 initiative and many others, um, mm. real pioneers. Because what you're talking about there is not necessarily even just the individuals getting involved, but the money behind the institutions, right, which is incredibly powerful in and of itself. And and I because there's both components, right, the money behind the institutions as well as the individuals, let me tell yeah. a story about the individuals. Probably the most moving moment for me in the whole Paris Agreement, three weeks because we were there for three weeks, was um, three or four days before the conference started, I was invited by the spiritual communities to come to a church close to Paris uh, where they were receiving so many people who had walked, marched um, from wherever they lived uh, to Paris in support of the agreement. And it was such a powerful ceremony that they had there, which ended up in them turning over to me a petition, not just for an agreement, but for an ambitious agreement, underline ambitious, because of the moral responsibility that we all share. And this support, it was not, not just the petition, it was truly them bringing their support in all kinds of ways, either through walking or through fasting or through praying or through singing or in all kinds of ways, supporting an ambitious agreement. They didn't want just an agreement. They wanted an ambitious agreement. And that was signed by 1.8 million people. 1.8 million people. Well, you can imagine the tears flowed down my cheeks because <laughs> I just couldn't... F how... The, these religious communities that come from all walks of faith were able to gather 1.8 million signatures from 1.8 million people who I will never know, but for whom I was truly grateful. 
I, you know, I remember that day. I came with you because it was a few days before Paris and I remember coming and I remember being incredibly moved by, by that event. I also remember, and I'd be curious if you remember this, that after the handover of the signatures, um, there was some music. And of course, as Christiana has told me many times, you can't put a Latin American on a stage with music and expect her not to dance. And in the course of the next five minutes, Christiana managed to get a collection of the most random assortment of bishops, rabbis, imams, um, priests, etc. All dancing. All da- the Africans, of course, are having a great time, but the Europeans are sort of awkwardly grooving in the corner of the stage, not quite sure what they're supposed to be doing. It was absolutely fantastic. It was one of the highlights of... Careful with your stereotypes. Right. Some Europeans can dance, but I, I do understand what you mean. Paul, we need a demonstration of European dancing from you on your Twitter account. What do you think? The third tweet, we're all interested in the possibility of it, but we'll have to wait and see. But that is quite, that's a very, I wish, if only, did you not film it, Tom? Did you not pull out your phone? I did. Well, I mean, it seems crazy to say this, but I had less of a habit of pulling out my phone and filming things even six years ago. Now, we're going to talk to Catherine Hayhoe in a minute, and I'll, I'll introduce her in just a sec. But just before we do, let's give us, indulge ourselves for a few minutes with a question of, of, of philosophy more than anything else. One of the interesting things that's happening with the religious engagement on climate change is that religions have really been concerned with personal salvation, right? Personal paths to truth, to enlightenment, to heaven, whatever it is. And one of the things they've really grappled with is this responsibility for this earth and how that personal path, together with that broader morality, kind of come together around stewardship. And some pieces of it are there, but there's also a tension. How do you think the world's religions are doing with stepping up to meet this big challenge to keep humanity safe? Well, I remember um, that in the lead up to Paris, the big aha that was made by both the religious communities and the science community, because for for years they were at odds with each other, right? Because yeah. one was protecting God's creation and the other one was arguing evolution and never the, the two shall meet. And the fact that eventually they were able to find a common ground, um, which was then expressed as the stewardship of as I said, of God's creation, and they were, most of them, able to see beyond their personal salvation to also see a collective responsibility for this planet that is the home to all of us, whether it was created or whether it evolved over 4.5 billion years remains a difference, but there is agreement about our responsibility to protect it for future generations. And that, you know, that, that bridge between those two communities was so important in bringing them together under the same roof for Mm. conversations that were incredibly transformative for both sides. Mm. And just a a tiny reflection from me, Tom, I think that I think if I was a religious person, I would see climate change as a religious test because we either look look after each other or we're all doomed. Mm. And it's that simple. You know, we're really being tested here Uh, and we've been tested about how we are with each other, how we are with our, with future generations and and how we 
conduct ourselves uh, when tested at a global scale. So that feels to me like a religious test. And I hope and believe that the, 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 the best religions will rise to that occasion. Mm. And actually, the, you know, and the people who are not of faith also equally rise. Mm. We are being tested. You can look at it through uh, the religious eyes or you can look at it Human through... Human spirit or... Yeah. By the way, Tom, how do you answer your own question? Well, I think it's a mixed picture. I think that... Um, I think some religions are doing better than others and some areas of religion are doing better than others. I think that we're living through a time where, as we've talked about many times in this podcast, where truth is under attack, where ideology is in the ascendancy, where um, values are sometimes less important than identification with a particular identity politics or a particular ideology. And I think that religion is sometimes cutting through that well and drawing us back to values, which ultimately is its role. And sometimes, honestly, it is doubling down on that ideology and it's providing yet another reason for division. So I think that in a way it is caught up in the mess of the modern world and some are doing well and some are doing badly. But I do know that our collective future is very well invested in them doing well. So we better make every effort to help them because it's a confusing time to be alive, right? And they're struggling like the rest of us. But when they do well, it changes everything. It is an interesting time to be alive, I believe, is the nature of the famous curse. <laughs> now, we've we've had this conversation about religion because of our guest this week, um, but we, we would be doing her a disservice to, to pigeonhole as her as a, only a religious figure because she is, she is much more than that. Um, Catherine Hayhoe, I think primarily, of course, is an atmospheric scientist and a professor. She's professor of political science at Texas Tech University, where she's director of the Climate Science Center. She is also an evangelical Christian. She is the daughter of missionaries, and she grew up uh, largely in Cali, in Colombia, um, as 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 part of a missionary group there. Uh, we spoke to her about religion, about her role in the world, about the dichotomy, the apparent dichotomy between being a religious professor in Texas who believes in climate and does so in an apolitical way. I think if there were more people who could hold that kind of dichotomy would be in a in a less polarized and better world a climate scientist who is a professor of political science yeah so here is dr Catherine hayhoe and we'll be back afterwards for more conversation um Catherine, we we wanted to start with a little bit of a personal question because you are the daughter of missionaries you are an evangelical christian yourself and it seems to us that you are such a unusual bridge between climate and religion that at least until the Pope wrote, wrote Laudato Si, it was very difficult for people who stood in the religious practice field to look over at climate or vice versa. Those two things were siloed um, and hence totally unhelpful. But beyond that, as though that were not enough, you also um, play a very important connecting the dots role by bringing politics into this as well. Most people who are evangelical Christians have a very hard time understanding climate science and what they should do about climate. So how have you brought all of this together? It seems like a fantastic melting pot. And just so that we don't think this is an easy thing to do, I have also watched how much 
criticism and frankly hate mail or hate tweets you have gotten? Is it because you're connecting dots that are not usually connected? I think you're right. I think that the level of pushback I receive, which often does not just border on, but cross the threshold into outright hate, it's almost a measure of how endangered people feel or how threatened people feel by that connecting the dots. And that is exactly what I'm trying to do because I'm convinced that just about every single person on this planet already has the values they need to care about climate change. They just haven't recognized it yet. Yeah. And if we are somebody who follows any of the world's major religious traditions, just about every single one of those traditions have the concept of stewardship or caring for nature. They have the concept of caring for people who are less fortunate than ourselves. We don't necessarily practice those two very well, but they're actually a core the part of our beliefs. The golden rule. Exactly. And, mm. and not just treating other humans, but treating living things as, as we would be treated ourselves. I'm reading a wonderful book right now by a woman who is a Native American and a Christian, and she speaks very powerfully about the Native American and Indigenous tradition of viewing living things as your brother and your sister, not as separate from yourself, and how that that's actually part of the Christian faith as well, not just um, mm -hmm. something that, that Indigenous people have to share with us. So as a Christian, I believe that from the very beginning of the Bible, where we are told that we have responsibility over every living thing and we are to tend and care for the garden, which is how the world is referred to at that time, all the way to the very end of the Bible where it says God will destroy those who destroy the earth, we have specifically Christian mandates to care for this planet and to care for the poor, the vulnerable, the weak, the people who are suffering, the people who, who are in need today more than ever. Hmm. So my message is not that we have to change who we are. My message is that we're already the right person. And in fact, caring about and acting on climate change is a more genuine expression of who we already are. And don't we all want to be that? Mm -hmm. Can I, I'm, mm. I'm sorry to cut in against Christian. Christian, I'll come back to your next question in a minute. But what you've just said is so interesting, but it presupposes the idea that values is the primary driver for our action rather than ideology. Do you think that's still true? Because it seems that ideology is driving more engagement with ideas than values. Oh, ideology is definitely driving engagement. So I live in the United States where the number one predictor of whether you agree that climate is changing and humans are responsible is simply where you fall on the political spectrum. Hmm. And I live in a town, Lubbock, Texas, which last time they checked was the second most conservative city in the United States, where when you have an election, you have the Republican candidate and then opposing them, you have the conservative Republican candidate. <laughs> This spends all their time talking about how liberal the Republican candidate Yikes. is. Yikes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so I live in the very heart of political ideology. And of course, there's some people who their political ideology is their religion. It is their values. It is the core of their being. Yes. And for those people, often you, you can get a bit of a breakthrough, like Bob Inglis, for example, who you probably know, former right. Republican um, congressman from South Carolina. He reaches out to people specifically based on that ideology. Um, but many people, especially in the United States, who profess that ideology, they also profess Christian values, whether Protestant or Catholic. And of course, it's a bit of a sliding scale, depending on how seriously they take those values and how much it means to them. But for many people, reminding them of their core values, reminding them of who they really truly believe themselves to be is a really important door to open. Hmm. Hmm. But Catherine, how, how did we ever get to this point where climate has fallen into this political divide? Because as you've pointed out, 
Um, there are values on both sides. You can say, well, decarbonizing the economy is about human rights and it's about stewardship of future. It's about protecting humans. It's about protecting other life on the planet. Or you could say decarbonizing the economy is about protecting the value of your assets. It's about economic growth. It's about prosperity into the future. It's about job creation. So y you could argue it, if you know, from both sides of the political divide according to values and principles that they both espouse. But somehow we haven't been able to do that. And in fact, climate change has fallen into the crack of the divide. And you're either pro-climate or against climate, depending, as you say, on what political part. How did it ever get so politicized in the United States? It's not as politicized in other countries, mm. but in the United States and in Australia, it is highly politicized. How did we get there? Well, honestly, I want to hear your answer to this, too. <laughs> <laughs> no, no one's done that before. No one's asked Christiana to answer Great. the question. That's better. <laughs> okay, so I will answer, but then I want your answer, because I think that we'll probably be similar on some ways, but a bit different on others. Okay. So in a sense, we're, we're both a little bit outsiders. I'm a Canadian living in the U.S., and you're a Costa Rican who has you know, spent time in the U.S. and in many countries around the world. And I'm also a scientist, though, and so I know that the science goes back to the 1850s. That is how long wow. we have known that digging up coal at that time, and obviously oil and gas later on, digging up coal and burning it was producing heat-trapping gases that are wrapping an extra blanket around the planet, causing the planet to warm. Mrs. Eunice Foote, who was an American scientist from upstate New York, published a paper in 1856 in which she specifically speculated if carbon dioxide levels were higher, the planet would be warmer. And just this past week, a brand new reanalysis of her data came out showing that you could estimate climate sensitivity from her experiment and you would come out with the median IPCC value from it. Wow. 1856. Eunice Foote. I well, remember what was her name? Eunice Foote. And, and, and Eunice Foote. But Catherine, isn't it true that in the beginning that paper wasn't presented by her? It was presented by a man. Was it her husband or someone else? And it took a couple of turns until she was credited with that. Is, am I, is my memory betraying me here? Not, not quite. So she was, first of all, she was an amateur scientist. She had a high school education at one of the only girls' schools in, in the United States that had a chemistry lab. So her education came from her high school um, chemistry lab, which is incredible in and of itself. And her husband was a judge, but he also liked to do scientific experiments too. So he was voted a member of the American uh, Association for the Advancement of Science. And because she was a spouse, she was covered under his membership. So she was also allowed to present her work. Now, her initial paper in 1856 was read by the president of the society at that time, who was also the head of the Smithsonian. So it was a great honor to have your paper read by, you know, Joseph Henry. But the very next year, she read her own paper on a different topic at the annual meeting as well. Aha. And I still presented okay. that meeting myself today. So it's a wow. tremendous inspiration. And then, wow. of course, on the other side of the ocean, there was John Tyndale, who was very well known at that time. And he was conducting advanced spectroscopy experiments. So he could actually identify which gases it was and which vibrational and rotational bands they had and what wavelength they were absorbing energy at. So he was the one who specifically connected coal mining to emissions of methane at that time and later CO2. So their work was very complementary. As far as we know, it was pretty independent from each other. And today we're recognizing that we've known this for a really long time. And back then it wasn't political. And in fact, a scientist first warned a U.S. president of the dangers of climate change 
over 55 years ago, and that president was Lyndon B. Johnson. And at that time, it was not political either. So when did it get political? It all started around the late 1980s. 1988 was a record hot summer. Uh, James Hansen, the famous NASA climate scientist, testified to Congress about the dangers of global warming. The IPCC was formed. The UNFCCC was signed. All of a sudden, climate action became real. Up until then, it was just the scientists talking about it. But as soon as climate action became a real possibility on the horizon, the richest companies in the world, if you go to Wikipedia and you just look at the richest companies by revenue in the world, the majority of the top 10 made their money from digging up, processing, selling, or making things that burn fossil fuels. And so the richest corporations in the world realized, hang on a second here. The entire world just signed an agreement to limit dangerous human interference with the climate system. And oops, that dangerous human interference is coming from us. So they began to invest, invest in think tanks that attack me and other climate scientists that publish misleading information in the newspaper, invest in false experts that merchants of doubt, a great uh, documentary and book talk about, false experts that will stand up and say, oh, it's no big deal, it's not real. The entire politicization boils down to solutions. And fascinatingly, if you talk to somebody who rejects the science of climate change today, on their own volition, within just a minute or two of initiating that conversation, it might begin with, oh, it's all volcanoes or solar cycles or you scientists are just making it up. But within literally a minute or two, they will pivot the conversation 90 degrees to solutions on their own volition because they're so opposed to the solutions that they can't accept there's a real problem. Mm. Because if you say it's a real problem, but I don't want to do anything about it, that makes you a bad person. And nobody mm. really wants to be bad. So instead we say it can't be real because we can't tolerate the At solutions. least not in public. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so, so just today, I was reading one of the, uh, an interview that Freeman Dyson, who's a famous physicist, of course, did with the Yale 360 program. And they were asking him why he disagreed with climate science. And frankly, he had a number of arguments which held absolutely no water whatsoever. But I was fascinated to notice that he did exactly this. Every single one of them does this. He pivoted immediately to, oh, no, poor countries need coal. They should be using coal. Right. What does he know about energy policy? He's a physicist. Yet his opposition to climate solutions was what led him to reject the science. So I think it all really comes down to who holds the balance of power and wealth in this world and whether they're willing to change or not. That's Sh my own shouldn't we, theory. Shouldn't we call it corruption then rather than politicization? <sighs> you, you absolutely could because it is corruption because it's being um, misrepresented. The science is deliberately being misrepresented. Is, is that a threat to national security with implications for the security of states? Oh, 100%. In fact, my favorite um, term for climate change and explaining to people why it matters is the simple term that is actually used by the military. Climate change is a threat multiplier. Hmm. It takes a threat mm -hmm. that already exists and it makes it worse. So, mm. Christiana, why do you think it's become so politicized? <laughs> I want your answer, too. Well, I, I love your, um, your answer because it takes us through history and gives us... Uh, that um, that depth of understanding. I have a much more simplistic answer to my own question. And that is because we have only recently discovered, we, the collective we, have only recently discovered that we can make money with the climate solutions. 
Uh, we, up until now, we thought it was only a burden and that it would uh, really bring down our economy. And especially companies thought that if they walked down the climate solution path with renewables or energy efficiency or electric vehicles or whatever, they were actually going to see a diminishing bottom line. The fact that the economy is now blowing wind in our backs, the fact that the economy is with us, the fact that the prices for renewables have gone down and that um, in, now, in uh, especially under COVID, but we already saw it before, companies that are incorporating climate responsibility into their strategy, and in fact, even ESG responsibility, are doing better uh, than their financial performance is better than those that are not. That's a relatively new um, phenomenon. And so it all comes down to your word that you use, which is wealth. Is climate, are climate solutions actually being seen as a contribution to corporate wealth or as a menace? And as long as we see it only as a menace, then it gets political. If we see it as a contribution, which it increasingly is, then we stand in a very different political space. That's my answer. Money. Yep. Mm. Well, Christiana, thank you on behalf of uh, Catherine and Tom and I for joining us on Outrage. Oh, no, sorry, I got confused. Hey, Catherine, can I, can I, can I first of all point out the genius of your analysis and also offer a little gift to our, our, our listeners? Uh, if anybody wants to go on, uh, on Google and look for a YouTube video called Climate of Concern, produced by Royal Dutch Shell in 1991, Climate of Concern, it's a 28-minute video that explains exactly all the risks of climate change ahead. So it's a, it's a fascinating piece. But, okay, Catherine, here's the question for you. Um, I've been looking in the newspapers recently, and it appears that there's uh, an important election coming up in the uh, Great Republic of the United States of America. And um, there are many thousands of people uh, listening to this podcast who would love to hear from you how they can engage uh, to encourage their friends, family, and people they know to vote for the party that's more progressive uh, on climate change, the, the, the Democratic ticket. And that may involve speaking to Republicans and, and asking them to vote a different way. How would you, uh, how would you encourage our listeners to, 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 to uh, pull people over to vote for the climate change party? That is a really, really great question. So politics in the United States is, is quite different than other countries. It's different because it is a purely binary choice. You have right. Republican or Democrat, number one. And it's also different because people's identity is very wrapped up in their party. People feel like I was born, uh, uh, you know, a Democrat or Republican. I will always be one and I will die one. In fact, if there's a different part of the cemetery, I will be in that part of the cemetery. <laughs> And part of that, I think, is because you have to register as a voter in order to vote in the primaries. You have to officially register as one or the other. And part of that is because the United States is so politically polarized, even now more than ever. Um, interestingly, I heard from a, a fellow political science professor a couple of years ago, the number one predictor of who you will marry now in the United States is no longer, you know, similar socioeconomic status or similar appearance or similar interests. It's how close you are on the political spectrum. Wow. Yes. wow. So that just enhances wow, it. Wow, that's amazing. Oh, yeah, amazing and also kind of scary. Is, is, it, is it also a reason for divorce? Aha. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not because nobody ever changed their political party, so it's totally fine. Oh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but Catherine's about to explain how to bring, because, I mean, I'm not like saying the fate of the Earth depends on the U.S. election. But we did say that actually earlier on this podcast. Yes, 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 yes. Yes. So, Catherine, how and can we, we get the right outcome? It. 
<laughs> How do we get the right outcome? Well, I, I wish we had a situation where we had every party saying, yes, climate change is real, but we have different solutions to it. One party might have free market conservative solutions. We, we have one that in party, the UK, by the way. Exactly. In right. Canada, we have five different uh, federal parties. We had an election last year and every party had a climate plan. The yeah. conservatives' plan would actually increase carbon, but <laughs> at least they had a climate plan. It's kind of a plan. It's just like the craziest plan I ever heard, but sorry. <laughs> yes. So so what I did was I got together with an economist in Canada, and we actually ranked the party's plans in terms of their ambition, number one, but also in terms of their feasibility. Could you mm. actually implement the plan within Canada's ah, regulatory system? Very important. Yeah. Very. And we got a lot of flack for that because the, the, the parties that got an A-plus on ambition did not get an A on feasibility because they hadn't got the mechanism figured out. So that mm. was very interesting. Unfortunately, in the United States, we don't have that now. What we have is one party that actually denies the science and rejects the solutions and is mm -hmm. not only standing still, it is moving in the opposite direction. It is shoring up the coal industry instead of um, the growing and burgeoning wind and solar energy industries. It is rolling back environmental protections instead of supporting them. So what I do for people is I say, you can keep who you are, but vote differently. And I point them to projects like, for example, the Lincoln Project, or organizations mm -hmm. like Young Evangelicals for Climate Action, or Bob Inglis's organization like Republican. And I say, you may have conservative values, you may have free market values, you may have, you know, what you would consider Christian values. Whatever values you have, you have to understand that they're not being represented by the party that you have adhered to for so many years. And so voting against that party in this election does not make you not a Republican. In mm. fact, some would say it actually makes you an even truer Republican standing up for the actual values that you say you believe in. And of course, myself, I don't vote in the U.S. I'm not a U.S. citizen. So I'm not advocating for people to vote for or against um you know, a certain person or party, it's voting for or against what you care about in this life. And helping people kind of have that dialogue about what you care about, I think, can hopefully show people um, how voting will determine yeah. our future. And it's one of the most important things we can do. Mm. So, um, Catherine, I want to ask you about, um, a while ago, I went to West Virginia, and I went down some coal mines and met some coal miners and tried to understand from their perspective, you know, it was the county that voted overwhelmingly for Trump, why they voted that way. And I brought some climate activists with us. And it was kind of heartbreaking in a way, because mm -hmm. they had this belief that Trump was going to bring their way of life back. And they'd yes. been used as political yes. pawns. And that was sort of coming becoming apparent to them in a slow and painful way. And when you talk about reaching out to people and engaging with them, you talk about the need for rational hope. You talk about the fact that fear will not really motivate us over the long term to really transform the systems that we need, but a rational hope about the future that we can create together. So what would you say to those individuals that I met in West Virginia who were facing that reality to give them some rational hope about their future and their children's future? Mm. Well, fear is what is driving so much of this polarization and tribalism today. Mm. It's fear that the world is changing too quickly, that we're being pushed to the back of the line, that we're losing the way things were. And so that's why the whole slogan, make America great again, in other mm. words, roll the wheel backwards. It's nostalgic. 
was yeah. so successful. The the origin myths that we tell ourselves are all the good old times, the best times, and they totally gloss over all the other stuff that happened back then, which <laughs> a lot of it was frankly horrifying. Um, but but we, we're so nostalgic. In fact, our human brain even forgets bad things, you know, that happened in the past, and we just remember the good. Um, often I think that's why we have multiple children is because we forget how bad it was the first time. <laughs> There's a lot of truth to that. Ah, yes. Tis true, tis true. <laughs> yes. So, so I mean, if we just recorded ourselves at the time and then replayed it. Anyways, um, so, so fear, fear is a knee-jerk reaction. Fear causes us to turn up and vote against something, but not for something. Hmm. That's something that they've learned in political science. And so fear is motivating so much of this um, this desire to swallow the falsehoods and the lies we're being told about how, yes, we'll restore everything to the way it used to be. There's no way you can ever do that. Yeah. The world moves forward progressively over time. We don't use horses and buggies anymore. We don't use party line telephones anymore. We don't use analog television sets anymore. We just don't use that stuff because we found something better. Yeah. But at the same time, how we feel about it is so important. So if I were going to West Virginia, if I were going to um, spend some time with people, the first thing I would do is I would listen. I would ask them about their fears, about what they've seen changing, about how it's affected their family, about what they want for the future, about, you know, do they really want the coal itself or do they want the jobs? Have they experienced the negative impacts of coal on their health? Mm. You know, if you live in coal mining country in the U.S., you suffer from increased risks of cancer, premature birth, birth defects, um, kidney disease, all kinds of horrible things. So I would just ask them questions because they don't feel heard. They yeah. feel pushed to the side mm. and not listened to. Yeah. And then asking those questions and getting into what they really want, I would say, well, I know that you want, like, and, and, and saying something back to people is so important. I know you want it to be the way it was. I know you want the coal mines to thrive again. But the reality is they've been, coal has been going bankrupt in the U.S. for the last 30 years. And it has so, nothing to do with climate change policy. Right, exactly. Nothing. It's just that we've been using it since the Middle Ages, and it's time to move <laughs> on to a new source of energy. <laughs> So, so I would try to brainstorm with them. I was in Utah a few years ago, and we did some brainstorming about how they have some towns there that are entirely dependent on coal mining, how they could bring in new industry, how they could offer retraining, how they could guarantee a new job in the new industry before they shut down the coal mine. Yeah. That's the type of way that's healthy change that gives people hope rather than just saying, oh, we, the world has to move on, but you will be left behind. Right. Um, Catherine. At the end of, uh, of all our conversations, we ask our guests whether they're more optimistic or whether they're most outraged about what is happening on climate. Um, but given the fact that you are a political scientist, I would love to ask you to um, situate yourself on this uh, spectrum between outrage and optimism with respect to the U.S. election and with respect to the impact that that election will have on the global response to climate change? Hmm. Well, I am probably... An easy question well, to finish off with. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so what I think is very interesting is that I think the outrage may drive the hope for the U.S. election. I think it's not so much that people are enamored with the Democrat Party or Biden per se, but they're so outraged by what has been happening that that may possibly drive change. So at the level of an entire society, I think outrage is actually a more constructive emotion when it comes to voting than hope. Hmm. 
But here's the interesting thing. Individually, I've discovered that hope is a much more effective emotion than outrage for me personally, because I have been outraged. And when I am outraged, I am not a good communicator. I just want to <laughs> grab people by the shoulders and shake them and scream in their face. Do you not understand what is happening and how horrible it is and how unfair it is? So, Have you actually, ever done that? As a small aside, have you ever done that? I Well, the time when I was, when I remember I was most outraged, like just sheer anger was after attending the Paris COP. Because while I was there, you know, we talk, and, and no, this is no, this is no negative reflection. Where's on you this at going? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to close the program That's now. Right. Yeah, thank you very much. We're ready for the tomatoes. <laughs> We're ready for the tomatoes. Go ahead. That's right. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it's, it's not going to be what you think it is. So, so <laughs> living in living in a rich country, all of the discussion is about mitigation. Yeah. It's all about mitigation. It's all about cutting carbon. It's all about setting targets and meeting those targets. But I, I knew. Um, objectively, I knew rationally that the majority of countries in the world, they're not worried about mitigation. They're worried about adaptation. They yeah. produce almost no carbon, yet they are suffering the impacts of the carbon we have produced. In fact, if you take a map of cumulative carbon emissions by country since the dawn of the industrial era, and then you take another map of climate vulnerability, which a number of people have looked at and developed indices of climate vulnerability, those two maps are mere images of each other. So I knew that objectively. And in fact, I tell people that all the time. But when I went to Paris, um, I was working with the Union of Concerned Scientists there because, of course, you know, Christiana, uh, most of our scientific work is done through the IPCC as scientists. But I went with a nonprofit to provide um, backup help for any country that didn't have its own scientific team. So if they had questions during the negotiations, they could come to us and we would find the scientific answers and give them our, our best information. And then while I was there... I was also doing events with uh, Christian groups from around the world, with people like hmm. Yebseno, who who did you know walked and fasted right. for climate, with people from Africa, with people from all over the world, with um, you know Bishop Ephraim Tendero, who is the head of the World Evangelical Alliance. He was yes. actually an official delegate for the Philippines to the, to the COP. So I met with people from around the world and heard firsthand, looking into their eyes, the suffering that they had endured, the mm. things that they had seen, and the, the injustices, yeah. the, the pain and the injustice that they'd experienced. I'm almost tearing up actually thinking about it again. And that made me so purely angry. The, the selfishness of the people in rich countries who call themselves Christians, yet just put their fingers in their ears and shut their eyes to the suffering that is happening around the world, the suffering that we are explicitly told that we are to care for and ameliorate to the, mo you know, to the greatest extent of our ability. And so when I came home from the Paris conference, I could not talk to anyone who wasn't concerned about climate change for weeks afterwards, because I was afraid that I would. I would just grab them by the shoulders and shake them and scream in their face and tell them that they were selfish and greedy and short-sighted. And how could they do this? And so I had to kind of walk back and look for those signs of hope. And I still practice that almost every day. I look for a sign of hope that I didn't know about before to keep that hope going and to share that hope because uh, guilt and shame and, and reinforcing fear, that will not affect long-term change. And that really is our goal. Mm. Wow. Well, you have spoken very much out of our own souls as well, Catherine. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. We, we, we do invite people on the um, podcast who think very differently than us. And, um, and we sit on our hands in order to not 
shake their shoulders. <laughs> but it is uh, it is wonderful when we hear um, someone who comes with the depth of the knowledge and the commitment, such as yourself, and uh, and reaches these conclusions. So thank you very much. Um, and, and thank you for your courage, Catherine. I, I have seen really a lot of rotten tomatoes being thrown at you and you are, you just, you know, stand up there and you answer in such composure, um, and, and such understanding of the pain that the other person is in is just really quite remarkable. So thank you for that courage. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Catherine. Okay, so how great to be able to sit down with Catherine Hayhoe and have a, such a broad ranging discussion about life and how she sees the future. Uh, what do you guys leave that conversation with? Well, uh, my experience of talking to her is I find it completely infectious. I thought her energy was overwhelmingly brilliant. Um, I was really supportive of her seeing disinformation on climate change as a national security issue. And there was one thing that she said about, you know, connecting with people on their values and whether you're a you know, Democrat or a Republican or whatever your political beliefs, um, that you come at it through your own lens. And I was actually reminded of um, Arne Ness's uh, apron diagram, this deep um, green uh, philosopher. Uh, who was very brilliant, actually. And he, he said that uh, it kind of, you know, this is this is my interpretation of, of his his thinking, but I love it. It's called the apron diagram. And it kind of says, you can think whatever you like. And then there's the apron string tied in the middle that says you've got to act sustainably. And then it, it says you can do it any way you like. <laughs> so it's the kind of maximum amount of freedom. Think whatever you like, do whatever you like, but you've got to act within that sustainable uh uh, limitation in the middle or, or constraint, if you want to call it that, or, or, or behavior, just like, you know, you don't go around and murder people. Um, and I thought that that was really, I, I found that very powerful that, that she uh, can see through uh, all these different ideological positions to recognize the kind of core responsibility that can, must, and will bind us. Hmm. That's an interesting way of putting it, Paul. Um, I, I think... What I've been thinking of is the same that you just said, but from different, we're using different words. I was taken um, certainly by her passion and her enthusiasm and her commitment to these issues, but I was very taken about how she can be a practicing Christian and yet still be very objective. She doesn't let her religious practice taint her understanding of the reality that we're facing. And she also doesn't let it make her indifferent. So I was very taken by a very interesting balance that she has of being objective, but not indifferent. Hmm. And those two, you know, when you balance those two, that's not an easy balance. Hmm. But I thought she does such a beautiful job of that. She's passionate hmm. about what she's doing, but she's objective. And she's definitely not indifferent. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I mean, obviously, we all know lots of climate scientists from doing the work that we do. And we also all spend time talking to a variety of people who hopefully who have different views from us. And one thing that that struck me with Catherine that I think is really admirable and very rare is that um, her compassion came before her need to be right. 
So obviously, as a scientist, she needs to be associated with scientific method and truth, and that's all very important. But it felt to me, and this is just an intuitive sense, I have no idea if she would agree with this assessment, but she was so compassionate towards the people who put ideology ahead of how they see the world, etc. And it sort of suffused her, and it kind of, you know, to, to, to walk the path that she walks where she teaches in Texas, very Republican, you know, right-wing state, very anti-climate, to be Christian and to be so clear about the risks that we are facing and to be willing to withstand all of that hate that gets thrown at her. Um, I thought it was a real um, testament to the fact that she brings so much of herself to it and she's so compassionate towards those people. I thought it was a really powerful endorsement of the way religion can be a force for good in the human character, actually. I was really impressed with her. Yeah, she she practices what she believes instead of just preaching it. Yeah. And she'll talk very practically about the huge amount of renewable energy in Texas, which I thought was super interesting. Yeah. Uh, I mean, not not in the interview specifically, but, you know, yeah, she, she, she sees things in the round. And I think one of the, the problems we face really uh, is that... Um, you know, as a society, we, we since we kind of lost God, the, the notion of God for, for a lot of people, then we lost any sense of uh, a holistic consideration. And we became very individualistic and I want to look after myself, I want to look after my family, you know, fend for myself, I've got to get enough money, I've got to get my pension sorted out and me, 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 me. And religion was really, you know, started from a, uh, in many regards, a completely different perspective, you know, the the kind of big we, not the the big me. Yeah. How interesting. We should have more. We should have some real religious leaders on. We haven't done that before. We should have Dalai Lama. I mean, who knows? We should, I think it'd be really interesting to get more religious people because it seems to those of us who are not strongly religious, it seems like they're living a dichotomy that you can't resolve, but clearly they don't think so. And actually, it's really working for many of them. And that's fascinating. Yeah. No, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I look forward to that. Very good. So this week, we have the continuation of some music. And this week we have party hip-hop duo Too Many Tees, who draw lyrical inspiration from the golden era of hip-hop and pair it with a more modern approach to production. And they are going to perform their song, Not Enough Bees. Now, normally, as I say, we bring some kind of response that the band has provided to a couple of questions about the role of the artist in face of climate change. But this week, Too Many Tees provided us with a recording of their response. So we're going to play that and then we're going to go to the song. So we will say goodbye before we pass you over to that. We really hope you enjoy the song and you have enjoyed this week's episode. We will be back as usual next week to bring you another conversation. Thank you as ever for listening. We so appreciate it. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. Bye. Thanks. What do you think the artist's role is during a climate emergency? I think that's a question that all artists should really be asking themselves. As our friends at Music Declares Emergency say, there'll be no music on a dead planet anyway. I mean, all too often, especially in popular culture, it's commercial successes and, and profits which are driving artists' narratives. And, you know, there is definitely a benefit to the escapism that music allows. And I think we all need that, you know, and we've probably all had positive experiences from it. But right now, this is the most serious issue we've ever faced. And the next generation are going to be most affected. So as artists, we na we, we're naturally role models and need to acknowledge the responsibility and use the influence that we've got conscientiously. Yeah, definitely. If you have influence over other people, then you really need to be conscious of it. 
Um, but regardless of what you do, I think there's an individual responsibility that we all need to get this message in our heads. Um, the first steps to realize how just out of sync with nature we've become in our society um, as it's progressed with technology and, and that we're so detached from the basics like where we get our food from. And we need to just take steps to reconnect with these as much as we can. And if we as artists and then the writers and hopefully the leaders do that too, then they will naturally impact those around them and those who listen to them. So, so yeah, I feel that we as artists like, need to learn and enact change ourselves first and then go from there. Yeah, man. Like we've created a couple of projects now using our music kind of as a call to fans. You know, And, you know, look, we're talking, well, we're rapping and raising awareness on subjects that are obviously negative. But we're counteracting this by offering some solutions and giving fans the opportunity to step up and take some action, which, you know, is key, I think, to actually do something about it. Like the track we're playing today, Too Many T's, Not Enough B's, managed to, we managed to raise enough money to build new hives for 60,000 new bees. And we're in the middle of a campaign right now called Too Many Trees, where we're currently raising money to plant oak trees here in the UK. And we're going to go and plant a forest with our fans. Actually, on the day, they're going to come, come with us and plant the trees themselves. So we're not only building community and getting that positive energy going but hopefully doing some good for the planet along the way leave those little bees alone we need them get the crops and the plants full grown yeah leave the habitat to be because if we save the bees we save the world and that's buzzing buzzing people see bees as scary little creatures armed with a sting that'll make you scream jesus and if you're allergic then make you see jesus or allah or there's nothing that depends on your thesis but anyway the bees don't ever want to hurt you these fuzzy little fellas are just in it for the virtue serving the hive feeding their little dudes all stick together way much better than we ever do and what do humans do Nickel their food, yeah that honey, that sweet sweet ooh I love it on my porridge, that sweet sweet goo I can't believe it's made from a little bee's puke Yeah, some bees get some pollen, buzz it back home Pukes it to another one, he sticks in an enzyme It's called invitase, switches it to glucose and fructose for the dinner plate That typical wicked shape of honeycomb Weather wax form to store newborns and honey so their colony will grow Numbers explode, not die like they have been, it's mad we know Cause no matter what you eat, you best believe we need bees, we need bees Believe without bees we'd be without a lot of food we eat Bees pollinate a third of our food supply Simply put they keep plants and crops alive That depend on pollination So it's a big problem for us humans If we remove the bee population And not just for the plants we eat Livestock eat wild plants pollinated by bees And we eat that meat So it ain't just vegetarians It's gonna affect us all And that's pretty scary 70 of the top 100 human food crops Are pollinated by the bees in those crops And those crops feed 90% of the world So just imagine what would happen if they stopped to grow It's probable that we wouldn't last long Experts are saying four years I don't want to see if they're wrong So stop killing the buzzing badass busy bodies Don't make the taxonomic error looking at the body Don't confuse a bee with a wasp like me Bees are my manner while wasps are angry Wasps are smooth and shiny while bees get hairy Bees focus on the flowers whilst wasps want the sweets Bees do good things, let's see a revival The critical pollinators and vital to survival If they make all our food grow for free then why are bees dying i hear you scream there's a whole hive of reasons it's quite complex but here's the top three that make bees real dead you guessed it right it's those 
pesticides buy your own spray sold in bulk supply specifically I need nicotine oils they do more than just get insects annoyed yeah they short circuit memories brain damaged bees navigation's damaged too they panic and they flee with neurons all fried they buzz at a time and don't make honey no more and soon die and next up it's the happy tap or their loss of it yeah there's a big attack on it fields and fields of corn maize and soy where the flowers that were there before now destroyed and the bees need pollen from all types of plants not just sugary corn the AIDS colony collapse yeah monoculture farming has a huge impact so the bees don't get what they need to fight back against mites pathogens diseases bad and don't start on climate change that's a whole other rap so what can you do Firstly, just be aware of how important bees are to me and you And now you're aware, no, you're not on your own There's a hell of a lot of people together around the globe There's conservation projects and prevention schemes Like friends of the earth, there were friends on the earth with the bees There's campaigns with solid plans Five million side, a neonicotinoid ban Maybe you want to support now, it's got in your mind And we'll get involved now and sponsor a hive But whatever you do, yo, do it today Save the bees, please, there's nothing left to say But leave those little bees alone We need them get the crops and the plants full grown Yeah, leave the habitat to be Cause if we save the bees, we save the world And that's buzzing, buzzing So there you go Another episode of Outrage and Optimism The track you just heard is Not Enough Bees by Too Many Teas Too Many Teas have an incredible YouTube channel Filled with really fast-paced and energetic creative music videos, and in between editing breaks, I've been enjoying them. They've got this amazing public enemy angst with like the charm of the Beastie Boys going for them. It's pretty cool. And so I put a link to their music, their YouTube channel, and the campaign they're running to plant 10,000 trees in the show notes. So I'm looking at the tree campaign website right now, and it says here, only two euros or two US dollars to plant a tree. It looks like I can actually do it right from my phone, so hey, let's do it. Okay, listen close. I'm about to help plant a tree. Here we go. There it is. <laughs> okay, that was that was too easy. Someone still has to plant the tree, but hey, the money's there. You should do this too. Help too many teas plant a tree. Link is in the show notes. Outrage and Optimism is a global optimism production and is executive produced by Marina Mancilia Herman and produced by Clay Carnell. We like working together, and it shows. Sarah Law, Katie Bradford, Lara Richardson, Sophie McDonald, Fran Newman, Sarah Thomas, and Sharon Johnson make the team. And our hosts are Tom Rivet-Karnak, Cristiana Figueres, and Paul Dickinson. Special thanks this week to Laura James for helping coordinate the interview with Dr. Hayhoe. Thanks, Laura. And thank you to our guest, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. So I just learned that last year, Catherine was named a champion of the earth by the UN Environment Program. Let me, let me repeat that. Champion of the earth. We know she's a doctor, we know she's a professor, but a champion of the earth, this is probably one of the most epic titles possible and definitely earned. I've put a link in the show notes to her most recent Reddit AMA, plus a link to her PBS digital series, Global Weirding, which is first an incredible title, but second, a great series addressing conversational and topical climate change subjects and questions with clear, rememberable science. I can't recommend this series enough. It's a great resource to study up on when you want to be a clear climate communicator. 
And you know the fun doesn't stop here. You can find us at Global Optimism on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, which is a website where you can pretend you've been dressed business casual every weekday this year. You hear me say it every week, but have you rated us five stars yet? Five stars takes five seconds and tells the world that we're worth listening to. So thank you. Okay. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week. Thank you.